Very good morning to everyone. I'm so glad to be here to be able to give you the Lord's Word, but I didn't expect to do it so soon. <laughs> yeah, they're working me very hard. Yes. <clears throat> if you have not seen me, it's not because I've been hiding in Adam Road for three years, but I just came back from overseas. Um, but before I begin, allow me to pray. Father, I'm so excited to share the Word to your people. Help me to be calm. Help me to be precise. Help me to be clear. And pray for the Spirit to help me. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Before we begin, I would like to read to you Psalm 45. It's a beautiful psalm. And I hope that this would be a part of your favorite psalms too. To the choir master according to lilies, a mesquil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, string instruments make you glad. The daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of offer. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With a joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This psalm is a very critical psalm in the series of psalms that you have from Psalm 42 all the way to Psalm 49 because it was written by a group of uh, people called Sons of Korah. 
And this psalm is important because it is the turning point. It is the watershed of a difficult time. The people, when the, the, when the psalmist wrote these psalms, the people were going through a difficult time. They were exiled. There was no more city of Jerusalem. The nation was been, has been defeated by enemies. And not only that, they have been scattered and there was no more king. And so that's why you, when you read Psalm 42 and 43 in our first week of the Psalms, it was a difficult time. People felt abandoned. They felt alone. They felt that God was not with them. And I'm sure at times, maybe you too might have felt that. In Psalm 44 that we heard from last week, the people were defeated before their enemies. They were put to shame. They were jeered at. And they hung their head low. And maybe you also may have been felt defeated too. So how shall we answer to a time of feeling of abandonment by God and defeat by our enemies as if God had disappeared? Or even worse, God had caused us to be defeated. This psalm can tell us something very important. This psalm can help us to redirect our focus, not upon the present circumstances of our lives, but to something future. And that's exactly what the psalmist is helping his people. The psalmist wrote this so that it will help the people to draw courage and not lose hope, and to not look at their present circumstances, but look to the future. Now, mind you, this psalm, when it was written, there was still no king. The psalmist never saw the king that God had promised, but he knew that God would promise one day the king, the Messiah. And that is why I believe that this psalm has much to say to us. And if we, and if we can learn it, then maybe we too also can respond with such vigor and love for the king. Now, this psalm tells us that you don't have to have a feeling of love or that when things are going down in your life that you cannot proclaim love to God. You still can because all you have to do is to look at God. All you have to do is to look to the future. All you have to do is to look at the King. Now, this psalm originally was written likely for a royal wedding between an actual king and a bride. But the psalmist took this psalm and now reconstructed and wrote it in a more beautiful way towards the king that God has promised, the Messiah. Now, how we know that? Because there are certain human qualities that we read in the psalms. The place is mentioned, like, for example, Ophir, the goal of Ophir, or the place Tyre, or the description of the smell of the ropes with aloes and myrrh and cassia. We know these things are obviously very human, physical, tangible things. So it must have been written for an actual wedding itself. But the psalmist has brought it even further because there are many divine attributes that you see in this psalm that you don't see it being referenced to any other king. For example, his throne is forever and ever, example, and how he is so handsome beyond all, all men. All these glorious things would tell us that this psalmist used a psalm that was written for weddings, for royal weddings, but now he has directed it to the Messiah itself. Now, how do you determine whether a king, a king is a good king? Meaning to say, a successful king. Do you see the amount of people who love him? 
Uh, do you see it, the, the kind of generosity he, he bestows upon people? There, well, I guess there are many things in which how we could assess how a king is considered successful. But in the ancient days, there were a few things that were important to the people that would determine for them whether this king was a successful or good king. And in the psalm itself, we can see it flowing very naturally. First, who the king is, is vitally important. And so we have in the beginning how the psalm is describing who the king is. That is important to them. Because the king represents the people. The second thing how you would assess whether a king is a good king, a successful king is, how well does he fare in battle? Because if this king is a good king, but he keeps losing battle, keeps getting defeated by enemies, you can tell this is not a good king. A third way in which how you can assess whether a king is a good king is how he reigns. What characterizes his reign? Is he, does he reign with cruelty, with wickedness? How does he reign? Because even if he can defeat the enemy, but he leads the people astray, he is not a good king. And the last one, which might sound quite funny, is whom the king marries. Whom the king marries is important. And as this psalm will tell us, as we will learn later, it was vitally important to the psalmist. And so we begin with the psalm itself. Now, if there's one thing that I would like you to remember, if you forget all that I shared in the next half an hour, is this. The main thing that I want you to remember is tell the generations that you love the king. I repeat myself. Tell the generations that you love the king. Now, this is taken from, psalm, from verse 17. Because in verse 17, after he has written the entire psalm, the psalmist is so excited. Despite his circumstances, he tells people, I will cause your name to be remem remembered in all generations. And in all generations could mean the older generations, our present generation, even our next generation. But the focus of the psalm is that I want to tell your name, I want your name to be remembered by everyone. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And that's one thing I want you to remember. Tell the generations that you love the king. And so the psalmist gives us four reasons as to why we ought to love the king. Before I give you the first reason, this, song is, this psalm is actually a response to who the king is. A response to him as being king because it is a love song. And it is a song that's not just intellectually engaged but something filled with emotions because we know in verse 1 he says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme and I dress my verses to the king. And he's really like a scribe to say things. And this, this psalm is so excited. And I hope too that after this, that you too will be excited to share with people why you love the king. In my younger days, you know, in all-boys school, when my friend, one of my best friends, let's call him John, okay? He's not named real John. John like Jane, okay? And I remember when we were very young in early secondary school, when he liked her, oh my goodness, he would keep telling us about her, everything about her, what's so good about her, what's so wonderful about her, even things we don't agree with him, but he would still continue to tell. And every day he would just bore us of how much he likes her, even though she has not responded to uh, his uh, feelings yet. But nevertheless, 
He's just so overflowed. You can tell that this guy likes. And how you know? Because his textbook will be full of John loves Jane, John loves Jane, John loves Jane, you know, all over in all the different subjects itself. This guy obviously, maybe he's foolish to love, maybe, you know, the, the girl will not respond to him, but nevertheless, it was so filled in him that his heart can no longer contain that it spills out by boring his friends and writing on his textbook and graffitiing on the table, on the school table itself. But this psalmist, his heart is so full of love for God, for the King, and he looks to it. And I want to share with you and help you to be able to know the reasons as to why we can love the king. The first reason why we should tell the generations that we love the king is because he is beautiful. He is beautiful. The first slide is because he is beautiful. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever and ever. Does it strike you that for a psalmist, the first thing that he tells us why we should love the king is because he's beautiful. He's beautiful. I guess in this day and age of fashion and being um, looking good, it has kind of made me dull down our perception of beauty that we almost automatically see something beautiful, we almost categorize it as being superficial. That beauty is skin deep, and then how we should not look for things that are beautiful and things that are deeper than that. And there's some truth in it. But I feel that maybe at some points, because of a reaction to the culture itself, we may have dismissed beauty entirely. That even something is beautiful, we may not even recognize it or even acknowledge itself. But for the psalmist, the first thing that strikes him about his king is that this king is beautiful. He is so handsome beyond all men itself. If you were to compare all other men in all the earth, he is handsome. It's a rare thing that you will read about how someone is being ascribed to in the Bible itself. And much and far more rarer that he ascribes to the Messiah, the king himself. Now, we know that beauty can be subjective itself because what is beautiful to some may not be beautiful to others. When my son was born, my first son was born, Callum, my first son, oh, I was so proud. And when I saw him, even, even though he was all red and wrinkly and crying, to me, he was the most beautiful boy in all the world. To me, he was the most beautiful boy in the world. Nobody could come near him. Now, when my second son was born, Cohen, he was also the most beautiful boy in all the world. Now, how can it be? How can there be two most beautiful boy, boys in the world and both born in the same household? You know, reporters should be coming in, you know, magazines should be coming. Wow, two most beautiful boys in the world. Well, I guess because, to me, it was because I love them. When you love something so much, that person or that thing is beautiful. And even people may, not, may deny it, it's still beautiful to me. Now, there is a subjective element about beauty, but to this psalmist, you know what? doesn't matter. This king of mine is the most beautiful. But yet, as we look upon it, 
it is not anchored on something subjective. It's anchored on something objective. How do we know that? Because in verse 2, he says continually, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Now, this is a version from ESV, but a better rendering of that verse actually is grace flows from your lips. That means grace comes forth from him. What the psalmist is so excited and he's looking at the, at the king so wonderfully is because this king, when he speaks, he speaks gracefully. Now, out of the, why he's able to speak so gracefully is because his heart is full of grace. This grace is so beautiful to this psalmist. He's like, oh my goodness, this king is so beautiful and I love him for that. Is it okay to love, for, love someone because the person is beautiful? Yes. But beyond that, the psalmist tells us he loves the king not because he's just beautiful, but also because he is so gracious that the things he says speak forth grace. Now, we also know that why kings, the beauty, or rather how good-looking a king is, is important in ancient Israel. Because when the people of Israel demanded for a king in 1 Samuel, King Saul was chosen. Now, do you remember how King Saul was described to be? He was handsome. He was really handsome. And he was chosen as king. Now, the next king to replace him was David. Do you remember how David was described? Described by Samuel himself, he was, he was ruddy looking, beautiful eyes, and handsome too. And even when he was on the battle with Goliath, Goliath also recognized him to be a handsome young lad too. So why are these things important? You see, because as I mentioned before, kings represent the people of royalty. They represent the people, and so that's why the people want the very best of their people to be their king. And so being good-looking was important to them because they represented the entire nation. And so that's why this psalmist continues that threat of what it means to have the right king because for the Israelites, if your king is not doesn't look good at all. He doesn't even fit the basic criteria of what it means to be a human king. And thus, for him, he can see the Messiah king is a beautiful king, but more than beautiful, he's such a gracious king, and that is where his beauty also flows from there. Now, the next reason as to why this psalmist loves this king is because he fights for his people. Tell the generations you love the king because he fights for his people. Now, one reason, one of the main reasons as to why the people chose, wanted, demanded a king in 1 Samuel, when they told Samuel himself, is because they wanted a king to go out and fight for them, fight against the enemies. So a king was very important. At that point of time, there were many other nations surrounding, surrounding Israel. And Israel was in enemy territory. And so these enemies would try once again to invade and try to attack them. And they felt defenseless. And so instead of trusting in God, the Lord himself, they wanted a king to go out in battle to fight for them. And so having a good king to fight and to win victories was critically important. Now, not only was Saul described to be handsome, he was also described to be very tall. In fact, he was so tall above that he, his shoulder was above all other men in Israel. Now, I can tell you from personal experience that tall people do have some 
advantages over short people. <laughs> well, when I was in track and field, when I was in primary school, whenever I competed against my taller competitors, whatever steps, the number of steps they take to complete 100 meters, I had to take another 10%. So if they ran, they took 70 steps, I had to take 77, if not 80 steps. Or when I was in the military, when I was in the army training, the equipment that we had to carry was the same equipment for a tall person as for a short person. They don't differentiate that. <laughs> and because a tall person is taller, he has more muscle mass. And so the ratio to my muscle mass, to the weight that I've been carrying, is far bigger than the tall person. So obviously, being tall is advantageous. <laughs> I'm sorry, I cannot say amen with you, brother. <laughs> yes, amen, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that's why Saul was chosen. Not only because he was the most handsome, he was the tallest. Tallest because with his reach, the sword can go further, reach the enemy clearer, uh, easier. The spear and evolved weaponry itself. Now, does it not surprise you when Goliath came into the scene the author spent a lot of time describing Goliath in terms of his height, his stature, his weaponry, his armor, his weight, all to show an imposing stature, an enemy, to show us that you can't defeat him. It is impossible to defeat this enemy because he is so tall, so big. He's a giant. And if you will continue reading, when Goliath called out for a challenger, who do you think actually was expected to rise up to challenge Goliath in Israel? The tallest man, Saul. And, he, him, who, and who was he? The king. The king that was meant to represent the people, to fight on the people's behalf. And he was the tallest of all the people. So that's why king in victory was important. For this psalmist, when he sees this king, this king is one who defeats his enemy. And I'm so glad he doesn't mention the height. Like you. <laughs> Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. For your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your swords, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. This king is not only one who rides out in victory, in such glory, but he fights not for his own battle, for his own selfish benefit. He fights not to extend his land. He fights not to get, gain riches or to gain, gain a, a bigger army. He fights for his people, for the cause of righteousness, of truth and meekness, which tells us inversely that the enemies that he fights for are people who are against these virtues, the enemies who love lies, who love pride, who love wickedness. This king goes forth in battle before the people and puts his life at stake to fight. And he wins victoriously. And the psalmist is so excited. Now, mind you, this psalmist knows defeat because the people were already in the post-exilic period. There was no more king, no more city, no more nation. They were a defeated nation. But yet... Because he looked to the future, yet because he looked to the promised king, he could share, he could pull out such love and say, you know what, 
our King will win the victory one day. Maybe not today, but one day He will win the battles. And this leads us to the third reason. Tell the generations you love the King because He reigns with righteousness. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now that he has gained victory over his enemies, how will this king reign? Will he reign well? And wonderfully, this psalmist tells us, yes, he will reign with righteousness. righteousness. And the best thing, why righteousness is so important is because his throne is forever. His reign is forever. This phrase of forever and ever is repeated three times in the psalm. If you look at verse 2, the last part, therefore God has blessed you forever. If you read at verse Six, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 17, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. In the perspective of the psalmist, eternity was, is the frame mind that he's looking at. It's the time frame, eternity. He said that, you know what? It doesn't matter now. Things may be temporal, but one day forever the king will reign. He will win victoriously over his enemies and he will reign with righteousness and we don't have to worry about that. Because they know that the earthly kings come and go. When the reign of a good king comes, like King David or even Solomon and Hezekiah, soon another bad king will reign. That king of righteousness, that reign of righteousness doesn't last. But also thank God that the reign of wickedness by King Ahaz, for example, or Jeroboam also do not last. But wonderfully, this psalm is celebrated. But when this king reigns, he will reign forever, and it will be upright. Now, righteousness is a word that describes not just an attribute about God who is being right with God, but a sense of justice, a sense of right. In this current political climate right now in all the world that we see, and it is frightening because Many countries that we are seeing right now and the difficulties that they are facing, it's a time of peace. It's not a time of war. And it's in the time of peace that pe these people are upset and angry with their government. And nobody would describe the government as being righteous. There's a sense of injustice that they feel. I, have not, I do not know the full details as to be able to comment intelligently whether it's right or wrong, but I know that people are upset. And we know that however good intention that we have, human governments are never perfect. But this one will be. This king will be perfect. He will rule with such righteousness that everyone will feel right. And to the psalmist, he's so thankful for it. And this leads us to the, the fourth reason. So I want to spend a little bit more time. Tell the generations that you love the king because his bride is glorious. Tell the generations you love the king because his bride is glorious. Now in verse 9 we read, Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. 
So in this procession, this beautiful wedding song, in the frame of the psalmist's mind, there are beautiful women all around. And one stands out at this point of time. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Now, in some ways, some people understand this queen to be the bride. But I think it actually speaks more of the queen mother herself. Now, the reason is because the bride is not inducted into the royal family yet. Secondly, she's outside, not with the king. She's outside the palace. In fact, in the further on in the verses, you will see her being describing, being her ushered into the presence of the king. And not only that, in 1 Kings chapter 2, when Solomon was king, his mother was sitting on his right hand as he, and he acknowledges her. So these details tell us that this is likely to be the queen. Not only that, in verse 10, you will see that someone is addressing the princess or the bride himself. It is very unlikely to be the psalmist because he doesn't speak of himself only except for the beginning of the psalm, before the psalm begins, and at the end, how he wants to tell people about the psalm. So it's very unlikely to be the psalmist. So it is very likely to be the queen mother. Now, this is an important point. The reason is because the queen mother is giving counsel to this bride. Now, in ancient Israel, whom the kings marry is vitally important. Because one is that due to the, com- uh, the commandment in Deuteronomy, kings are ought, no, uh, the Israel, peop- the Israel ought to marry within themselves, not to other nations, because these were idolaters. They worship other gods. And fearing that they will turn the hearts of the husbands, the God, God forgive them, uh, forbade them. And that's, and that's something that we saw um, played out in Solomon's life, how he married many foreign wives and they turned his heart. Now, another reason why whom the king marries is because of longevity. Because the human kings know that they will pass on and they need to continue that, that, that kingly line down to the next descendant, to the next generations. So getting married, having a wedding is vitally important for the continuing of the king itself and the kingdom. So, why is the queen mother advising this bride? And the reason is because this queen or this bride is a foreign bride. Why do I say so? Because in verse 12, you will read that a, actually a, a better uh, rendering actually is this the daughter of Tyre, the wealthy people. The daughter of, of uh, the word actually can mean people of Tyre, but actually it's better suited to word use daughter. So here we know that this princess actually comes from the place called Tyre. That's one. Secondly, there is the idea of forgetting of your people. Verse ten, forget your people and your father's house. Now you usually wouldn't say that to your own people. You may say forget your father's house, but you never say forget your own people. Now the third reason why we believe, I believe this is. The, uh, this princess or this bride is a foreign bride is because of the counsel that the queen is giving. So if this princess is not a foreigner, there was no need for the queen to give her a counsel in that sense. No need for her to say, forget your people. No need to address her as the daughter of Tyre. Now this would have been most striking, if not shocking, to the Jews, especially in those days. Why? It's because of the 
breaking of the commands of the kings who became wicked, that's why they have been punished by God and being scattered. And now they don't want to have anything to do with Gentiles at all because they realized that was the price that they had to pay so heavily. But here, this author, this psalmist, in talking about the promised Messiah, talks about a foreign bride, not a Jewish girl. So it must have struck them so deep. Why, why would you talk about that? And not only that, because this is a love song to the king, why would you commit six verses talking about the bride? Why would you just, why can't you just, uh, just give one verse talking about the bride and that's it? Why would you almost spend six verses describing the bride herself? And this is something very important that I want you to take note. Do you notice that the description that the psalmist described the king is a similar way in how he describes the bride? What do I mean by that? Look at verse 10. He calls, uh, sorry, verse 11. He says, the king will desire your beauty. Which tells us the bride is beautiful. Look at verse 2, how he describes the king. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Next, he describes the bride as people giving homage and seeking favor with her in verse 12. The daughter of Tai okay, um, will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. That means people will bring, go to, before her and give her homage and give her gifts, will submit to her. Now you read in verse 5, you will see the psalmist describing the king as the peoples fall under you. Again, if you read in verse 13 and 14, the glorious description of her robe. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she's led to the king. And how does the psalmist describe the king's robe? Verse 8, Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And describing him in majesty and victory, all these wonderful words. And lastly, how does he describe her entering into the palace, uh, approaching to the king? With gladness, with joy. Verse 15, with joy and gladness, they are led along as they entered the palace of the king. And how does the psalmist describe the king of God blessing him? Therefore, verse 7, God has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, it's not by coincidence that the description that the psalmist described the king is now being placed upon the bride. Because it tells us something about the king, not the bride so much so. We have no idea who this bride is, where she comes from, as in her status in life. But we know because now she is the bride, she is being lifted up to a royal status on par with the king. So much so that what the king is and has, now the bride has too. They have it too. All that he has in glory, she has it too. And this is an amazing thing. And all, this, all the bride has to do as by the counsel by the queen is to forget her people and to bow down to him in submission as him being the king. 
Now, what has this got to do with us? What has this psalm got to do with us? Can we also rejoice like the psalmist and tell the generations that we love the king and why we love him? And the answer is absolutely yes. As the sons of Korah wrote this, they, rem- they had nothing. They were defeated people, no kings, no city. But they still held on to a hope, a future hope that they were not get to see in their lives, but they knew it was real because it was in the Word of God. And so they focused on the King, the promised Messiah. Now you and I know today who this King, the Psalmist, is talking about. We know, we are very clear, because this is a Messianic Psalm. This King is Jesus. But do you know who this bride is now? Exactly. This bride is you and me. The bride that is being described here in the future is the church, the bride of Christ. And that explains everything why the bride that was chosen was a foreign bride. It's a Gentile nations, as we are all Gentiles. In fact, this, if you read this, when you see the word, forget your people, forget your father, and I will bless you, straight away, it will push, it will point you back to Genesis chapter 12, whereby God spoke to Abraham and, tell, and told him to leave his family, to leave his household, and God will bless him. And God will bless him so richly that the blessing will not stop at his family, but will be a blessing to the entire nations. And this is how God was going to bless the entire nations through the marriage of the king to the bride. And the bride is a Gentile bride. And how did this, how was this achieved? When Christ came as king on this earth, he came and he showed us who he was. But not only that did he come in meekness and in righteousness, He died on the cross, and by dying on the cross and rising from the grave and ascending to the throne of heaven, he achieved something that the psalmist was hoping for. From being the most beautiful king, Christ became the ugliest. By fighting the greatest battle that none of us can fight, he fought and won, but he gave his life in the process that we may live. He exchanged His righteousness and purity for your filth and my filth and my sin that we might be clothed in glory. And when He ascended to the throne as King, He chose you and I as His bride. You are the bride of Christ. Therefore, take heed to the counsel of the Queen Mother. Incline your ear and consider. Bow before this King and forget your past. Don't think about what is happening to you now. Think of your King because you are the bride. You may feel alone right now. I have no idea what struggles you may be struggling at this point of time, but you are not alone because you have a King 
and your king is your bridegroom. You may be feeling defeated because you are fighting your battles. You don't have to because your king is fighting for you. And because he has defeated the greatest battle, you don't have to feel defeated. You are victorious. You are beautiful because he is beautiful. You are righteous because he is righteous. You are glorious because he is glorious. Therefore, go and tell the generations that you have a king and you love him so much. Let us pray. Father, we ask for forgiveness. Forgive us because we don't tell you how much we love you and we don't tell you enough. How we allow things to overwhelm and distract us that we forget that we have a king and that we are his bride. Forgive us, Father, that we have made other things to be king of our lives. That's why we are in our present circumstances. But restore us, Father. Lift us up. Remind us that we are beautiful, righteous, victorious, glorious, not because of our own doing, but because of what Christ has done and how he has chosen us. Encourage my brothers and my sisters over here, Father, we pray, and help us to go forth and tell the generations that we love the King. In Jesus' mighty and majesty name, amen.